This is a diet of Brussels. Uh, today we've got an interview for you. Uh, I'm really happy to have got with uh, Tony Connolly, who is RTE's Europe editor, based in Brussels. Uh, the interview was recorded on Tuesday, the 25th of June, 2019. Uh, Tony is one of the most well-known journalists covering uh, Brexit issues, particularly interested in the Irish dimension, but also just very good on the mechanics. Uh, You'll hear him mention his book, uh, Brexit and Ireland, which I thoroughly recommend. Uh, It's probably the uh, most accessible and one of the most detailed books uh, on the subject. Uh, And there's a new edition that's come out uh, fairly recently. Also, I recommend the uh, Brexit Republic podcast, which you can find on audio podcast sites, uh, which uh, comes out every Friday, which is a very good update. uh, And uh, yeah, is is really good. And uh, Tony is also on Twitter and uh, all over the place on the internet. So uh, I'm going to take you there. In the interview, we... uh, cover some different kinds of things, trying to think about some bigger picture issues about Ireland's place in the EU, uh, about the the Brexit negotiations, also a bit about the media uh, and how that goes. Um, We were recording uh, outside uh, Tony's office in Brussels, which turns out to be closer to Brussels airport than I thought it was. So a point, I apologise if uh, the low-cost airlines flying over drown out a little bit, but it's certainly worth it. So sit back, enjoy, and here's Tony. So you're based here in uh, Brussels. How do you see your role in the debate? Is your audience primarily the Irish audience or have you... you you Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose at the outset my audience would, would strictly speaking, be be an Irish audience. Uh, But obviously with with the internet, uh, you know, anyone has access to your output. And I found that, you know, know, like everybody else, Brexit, uh, the result was a bit of a shock. Um, And, you know, everyone was scrambling to understand what it meant um, and even though you know there was a fair amount of think tank circulation of information in the run-up to the referendum in Brussels, you know there was there were a lot of good people uh, working on it. The full scale of the the unscrambling of the omelette and the Irish part of that omelette um, was not really apparent in, in the first couple of months. Um, so then in the autumn of 2016, as people began to get to grips with, with this, what this actually would mean, um, you know, because it cuts across all of EU policy, it cuts across the sectarian divide in, in Northern Ireland, it cuts into Irish history, Anglo-Irish relations. So there were just so many different avenues to go down. Um, and so I started writing these longer pieces on on the website, uh, RT website, because you could basically write forever. You know, there's no <laughs> there's no limit. You know, to which can be a problem. But I, I find it was a good a good place to actually flesh out the detail and ex- explain, you know, why uh, you know what would happen with fisheries, for example. Because you know, instinctively as a journalist, if you hear rather blunt and disingenuous assertions by politicians that everything will be fine or X or Y, then if you actually know how EU fisheries works then 
you you tend to want to challenge that or you tend to want to let people have an explanation as to as to how all this means what all this means how it all fits in so i started writing these longer pieces then then i got commissioned to write uh, the book on on brexit in ireland which i had to write in in three months so i had to just like my life in t- uh, the sort of winter and and spring of 2017 was just consumed by trying to get this book out but it, it forced me into these deep dive understandings mm-hmm. of of agri-food of of milk crossing the irish border um of fisheries of the common travel area and then of course there was a very vivid sort of parallel story of the diplomatic maneuverings between ireland and and the uk and and the eu which provided a lot of you know color and drama i suppose so uh, you know having had to sort of start off on on that you know like like cycling uphill in fifth gear you know eventually you get a bit of momentum and you know i i have a good sort of you know grasp of the issues and you know i i i think my role now is i still regard myself as an irish journalist broadcasting for an irish audience but i can see now that my my longer explanation pieces you know do get quite a good purchase in the uk and and you know i've been invited to to talk to you know various organizations in the uk and and sort of explain the the irish position or the eu position and you know i'm perfectly happy to do that but um but you know but i try and and operate from the standpoint that um you know the eu law is is sort of geological it's much more you know unchanging it's it's fixed you know 27 countries are going to preserve the the treaties whereas the the, the brexit forces are, are more kind of tidal they're kind of trying to push against this and been, been flung back and pushing against it again with with not too much um you know realism uh, sinking in um so that's really my, my the way i would see my approach to it uh, raises a, a couple of question i you, you talked about the color and you know they kind of you know for, there's no shortage of drama and uh things that which might elicit strong emotional responses of various kinds mm. uh how do you balance that against the the more technical side that you know the practicality of the different areas that you talked about and you know, i know in the book you 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 do balance those two things but generally do, do you find that there's a a pressure to, to speak more about one than the other or well not not really i mean you, like the stuff that you write i mean it has to be readable so you you have to it's it's a blend of the politics of this and and the technical side of it um and that's why we're all thanks to brexit wallowing in you know world trade organization rules and tariffs and rules of origin and uh you know, uh, sanitary and phytosanitary. None, none of our lives were you know, tainted with this like three years ago. Uh, but but everyone now is, is grappling to try and understand this because uh, yes, um, Brexit is intensely political. And when it comes to the entirely unanticipated issue of the Irish border, um, it, it is it, it taps into you know quite a um, sensitive and tender uh, Anglo-Irish relationship, which had only just uh, found a, a very happy rhythm and pace mm. with, uh, you know, with the Queen's visit in in t- 2011, and then the Irish president had a return visit, uh, I think a couple of years later to the UK. So, so everything was actually going great between Ireland and the UK. There was a great relationship between Enda Kenny and David Cameron, um, but but all of that has been kind of cast into 
turmoil by by Brexit because you know it opens up the border issue, it opens up the sectarian divide in the in, in Northern Ireland, and it it also has opened up a lot of you know long since dormant uh, you know insecurities or or pathologies in the way the Irish and the English talk to each other and there's a you know there's a probably a long resuscitated chip on the Irish shoulder about being patronized by by the by the British in particular by you know the Tory England um, and, and that all feeds into it so it, it's important to, um, to to tell that story but ultimately the EU is you know it's a it's a rules-based organization it it's it's a voluntary coming together of 28 countries on, on in the hope that cross-border activity can be made easier and cross-border trade and cooperation can be made easier and that just means an awful lot of rules so this is essentially a highly technical thing and i guess this is the other kind of big question is Ireland's staying in the EU, despite what some Tory politicians might suggest from time to time. How much of Irish EU policy is about Brexit now? You know, how how dominant is it? Uh, you know, and ca- is there a an ongoing other set of issues? You know, the, mm. uh, other initiatives that y- you think are important? That yeah, I mean, certainly. When it comes to the EU, I mean, it's impossible to avoid the Brexit lens that, that through, through which everything uh, is filtered uh, today in Ireland. Um, I think it's important to point out that this coincides with Ireland becoming a, a net um, contributor to the EU budget. Um, the, the, the government's current positioning on the EU is is that it wants to be less transactional uh, you know there was a feeling when Ireland joined the EU in 1973 that oh, it'll be great for the farmers and uh, it'll be it'll be great for uh, you know structural development infrastructure roads and so on um, uh, but now that that's a very different time and uh, of course we Ireland is a, is a lot richer it, it's okay its GDP is somewhat skewed by the presence of huge uh, multinationals from the United States and in, in pharmaceuticals and and so on but uh, it's having to kind of rethink its posture towards the EU um, and that that's brexit aside that's already a bit tricky because you know, once you become a net contributor to the EU, then people, citizens, taxpayers, ask harder questions. You know, what are we getting out of this? Sure. Um, Ireland's not immune to that. Um, the the vulnerability of Ireland's corporate tax, the, the the sharp spotlight that's been shown on Apple and Google and all these big American tech firms that have their headquarters in in Dublin, um, that is is uncomfortable for the government. Um, and you know, from a Brexit point of view you can see how certain brexiteers will uh, chip away at that and try and try and open those wounds i think uh, among um, the irish commentariat um but i mean all that aside because of brexit support for the eu has has rarely been higher i mean it's it's at some ridiculous 90 percent or something yeah. uh, uh, because i think people over time now over the past three years have seen that the EU has, by and large, stood by the Irish government and largely accepted and co-opted Ireland's analysis of the risks of Brexit to the to the border.
do you think Ireland is treated differently? I'm thinking about small member states, thinking about Greece, for example, mm. you know, and the way that uh, a lot of Greeks felt that they were uh, hung out to dry yeah. uh, for a long time during the financial crisis. Do you, know, do you think that there was a desire to, to correct from that? Or do you think it's a different kind of issue? Well, certainly when Brexit happened, it was quite common to hear senior EU officials in, in, the, in the Commission and elsewhere when they were asked about support for Ireland. They saw Ireland as a good European, but they also recognised that Ireland took a hit, you know, with its own bailout. I mean, not not as gruelling as as uh, as what happened in Greece, uh, no doubt, but, uh, but it was still substantial. And I mean, there there, there was quite a bit of resentment in Ireland uh, at the EU. I mean, there was a, there was quite a prevalent feeling that this was the EU looking after French and German banks at the expense of Ireland and. You know, uh, you know, it, it wasn't really our debt, and uh, you know, we, we were being made to shoulder it. Um, but that antagonism has dissipated now since Brexit. And I, but I think the the EU, uh, you know, was 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 cognizant of that. More importantly, I think the, the EU felt that it it did not want to make anything worse on the island of Ireland with how it handled Brexit, and it felt that it had um, invested quite a bit. Um, in the Irish peace process in terms of money and uh, you know structures that were set up the, the Barroso task force mm. uh, the peace funds um, and they were aware as well maybe not explicitly aware but certainly the Irish government took no lost no time in you know explaining to anybody in Brussels or other capitals who would listen you know that that the mutual membership of the EU by the UK and Ireland had helped to uh, create you know, legroom around the the relationship between um, Ireland and the UK historically. I mean, the the, the first time um, the Irish and British prime ministers ever met was after 1973 uh, in Dublin. Yeah. Um, you know, so so the EU was quite aware of its perhaps it was a more passive role than than the American involvement in in the in the peace process. But the, this was something they felt that they should they should preserve and 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 to make sure you know didn't didn't go into reverse. You've talked about how the Irish didn't pass up the opportunity to work the EU, and you've written about that extensively and just the the, the mm. huge diplomatic effort that went in to that. Will that have a lasting impact? Do you think? Do you, do you think Ireland will be able to benefit in the longer term? Beyond, you know, thinking beyond Brexit, if we can think beyond Brexit, uh, you know, do, does this suggest a, a more—I don't want to say muscular, but a more ambitious role for what Ireland's place in the system is, whether that's in, mm. in the EU or even beyond? Well, they've, they've certainly embarked on on a diplomatic expansion. I mean, they've been opening new embassies and consulates around the place, not not just in the EU, but mm. but uh, globally, and you know, they are. Acutely aware of the, the the sudden exposure by Britain being plucked out of the of the EU, you know, Ireland often relied upon the UK to fight the the whole corner on taxation, on single market, on on services, and so on. Uh, and you know, when you had a a partner in the European Union with such heft and intellectual um, 
strength as the UK did in a lot of these debates, then it, it made it, it easier for Ireland to kind of come into the slipstream behind the UK. And so that's gone. Um, if, if Brexit <laughs> happens, that will be gone. Uh, so the UK, so Ireland is having to quickly forge new relationships. You know, uh, there's the Hanseatic uh, organization of Baltic and, and Nordic and, and sort of Northern European mm. states. Uh, they, they have traditionally been good allies of the French when it comes to agriculture, but not so much on taxation. Um, but the fact remains that um, Ireland is still a very small country that can you know, easily be outvoted uh, when it comes to the crunch. Um, so, so that remains uh, to be seen. And the whole question then of whether the EU will continue to support Ireland, I mean, I think the important thing was that Ireland got its its priorities embedded in the negotiating structures of, of the EU. So when they set out their negotiating guidelines for Michel Barnier, the Irish issue was there in black and white. This is what the EU is going to defend. And that those negotiating guidelines have been a fairly strong reference point at, at every European Council. Um, they, they have stuck to those principles. So that still gives Ireland a certain amount of comfort. But of course, if you get closer to October and, and the risk of no deal and people are saying, you know, what this what is this Irish border and why are we uh, at, at risk of, of the UK tumbling out because of this somewhat exotic um, far flung piece of geography you know on, on the western seaboard uh, that that risk is always there I think um, but so far you know the, as you know the, the EU have stayed pretty solidly behind the Irish position which kind of raises a paradox on the one hand the Irish have been incredibly successful at that level within the EU but then clearly we haven't got to a point where the UK is willing to sign off on the, the withdrawal agreement mm. so where where is the the flexibility to find something that everyone can live with going to come from? Because we're seeing sort of reports mm. uh, from Brussels of sort of various EU member states asking what happens in a no deal. Mm. You know, if you say you want to avoid a border, mm. uh, and again, you, you do talk about this kind of ambiguity that we can't yeah. have any new structures. Yeah. But also, if we have a no yeah. deal, we'll do our best. Which raises the question: Well, if you can do it in a no deal scenario, why can't you? Yeah, of course, um, and this has been the the deepening paradox for the Irish position. Um, and I would say that you know, back in December, Theresa May came to Brussels to the European Council and and had to you know make a pitch after the withdrawal agreement had been delayed until mm. January. Um, and at that point, certain EU leaders were saying to Leo Varadkar, the Taoiseach, well, you know, do you know what's going to happen? You know, it was gently probing rather than. Uh, rather than pushing, yeah, um, and and it has been, it has been an extremely difficult tightrope for for Dublin to walk because the moment you say, well, if there's no deal, then we 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 won't we don't want to have any infrastructure at the border. So then that invites Brexiteers to say, ah, all along we knew the backstop was a phony; it wasn't necessary. But of course, the backstop is part of an agreed settlement between the UK and the EU. It is designed to make sure that the damage and the collateral damage to the peace process and the border region is kept to an absolute minimum, if not even that, that the status quo remains. In a no deal situation, 
none of that, all of that goes out the window. So therefore you're left with picking up the pieces. Uh, so clearly uh, it's a suboptimal situation, but but Ireland knows that it, it has to, you know, comply with the EU single market. It has to, you know, uphold its side of the frontier. And, and that's been a really difficult uh, problem for Dublin because the moment you start articulating that you, you will either not have checks or, or have checks away from the border, then people will say, ah, well, there you go. You know, you don't need the backstop. But of course, they're two entirely different things. Why? One of the things I, I, I never really understand is in the UK, we spend a lot of time discussing what we could do instead of a backstop. Mm rather than thinking well what would be a future relationship that would obviate the need to use mm. the backstop or you know mm -hmm. would limit it because you'd replace it with another thing so mm. why why is is that just politicians is it just that the backstop something that's easy to 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 latch onto because i never hear anything about the transition period which mm. is even more pernicious to the uk because they've got to do everything and mm. they don't get any say yeah um is it because the transition's fixed well, in time and the, the, the backstop is potentially I think that the, indefinite? The, yeah, the, the backstop has been, you know, is now the most sort of vilified <laughs> thing in, in, in British political discourse. Um, and, you know, that, that often annoys people in Dublin and also a lot of, you know, the, the majority of people in Northern Ireland voted to remain and actually the majority of people in Northern Ireland are really quite happy with the backstop including the business sector yeah. farmers um, because they would agree with the proposal that it gives them the best of both worlds of course there would be problems uh, on goods coming in to Northern Ireland from Great Britain in a backstop situation but th those are deemed to be more livable with um, f for most sectors uh, compared to um, you know what what the backstop involves um, on on the other side. The problem with the backstop is that initially it was designed to to solve the Northern Ireland's problem specifically, no. but then when Theresa May I think realised once the first legal iteration of the joint report was produced in February of two thousand seventeen, or rather two thousand eighteen. Um, I think it was a much starker reality for her and for the British government that they realised that in a backstop situation you would have to have, you know, some kind of controls on the Irish Sea, and that this would be a significant differential uh, or differentiating of Northern Ireland with the rest of the UK. So, given that she was dependent on the DUP for survival, uh, that suddenly was it was a non-starter. So. Uh, what the UK then did was they, they pushed for a UK-wide uh, backstop uh, for customs, um, uh, for goods, um, to avoid that danger of customs checks on the Irish Sea. But then once that became a thing in the negotiations, you had Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, uh, being asked to adjudicate on whether that could mean the UK staying in indefinitely and he said it could mean them staying in indefinitely. The EU always disputes that saying you know it doesn't mean they'll be there uh, by definition uh, long term uh, it just depends on what the future trade agreement will look like. Um, I mean if it's all about outcomes in the end if a future free trade agreement with uh, the UK and the EU it has such high alignment in terms of 
regulations, in terms of customs, then of course that diminishes the need for the backstop because that would keep things pretty much as they are in on the island of Ireland. But if the UK wants to drift to more towards a more Canadian style free trade agreement, which has less integration, less alignment uh, of goods and services, then of course that then creates friction on the Irish border. So this is the this is the problem. Um, so I think it seems to me that during the negotiations, the UK were sort of saying, well, the, the, the very fact of a free trade agreement will mean that backstop doesn't have to happen. So as long as we can do it by December 2020, then the backstop will be never needed. But it's the, it's the quality of the free trade agreement that actually will de- determine yeah. what is the level of friction on the Irish border. What if we is uh, always a fun game to play, even if never, it's very productive, but would it, how different would have things been if there had been a Northern Ireland executive in place? Well, you know, you know, is, yeah. Has the DUP, you know, do you have the impression that the DUP is Northern Ireland as far as London is concerned, you know, that's all that matters? Yeah, well, that, I mean, that has been seen from an Irish point of view as one of the real problems. Uh, a, you have a no Northern Ireland executive, you have no political buy-in to the backstop as it was being uh, evolved in the negotiations you you had no um, you know Northern Ireland committees where people could you know explore the issues try and get some kind of consensus around how it, it was going to work um, and it, it meant that this was all being developed in a vacuum by Theresa May through an extremely tight circle she was not involving the DUP in the detail at all um, in the run-up to the joint report uh, and that just created a climate of paranoia on the DUP side um, and frustration on the Irish side because it meant that what had been negotiated Dublin felt in good faith was then hostage to the political situation in in Westminster Um, uh, and and that has been a real problem I suppose it's a double whammy of the DUP having that hold on Theresa May in Westminster and the executive and the assembly not having any political buy-in whatsoever um, in in the process. What question do you most dislike being asked in the <laughs> Brexit process? The one I usually dislike is, what's going to happen? I know, yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Well, I, I tell people who ask, I say, well, either, either I'll have to charge you $10 or uh, I, I, will, I will ring you back two hours later and say, actually, I've changed my mind. <laughs> but, you know, we have been in this weird sort of holding pattern since last year. Um, with the same arguments circulating within the Conservative Party uh, on the Today programme, Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt are now head-to-head and they are coming up with solutions that still have the same contradictions that they had back in 2016. Uh, I mean, the Alternative Arrangements Commission brought out a big report this is the privately funded uh, operation that that came out with its big report one suggestion of which was that Ireland and the UK would form a combined area for uh, agri-food animal health food safety Mm. uh, effectively requiring Ireland to leave the single market uh, when it came to agriculture and food safety uh, and this was an idea that, that circulated very quickly after the referendum and just was shot down immediately. Uh, and now it's back again uh, as part of this alternative arrangements uh, community and, and ecosystem. Um, 
So, yeah, it's it's a strange circular process and uh, and, and problem, um, but ultimately, you know, when it comes down to midnight, is the UK prepared to to go off the cliff in a no mm. deal situation, or will they decide that it's just not worth the risk economically? Um, and that's a really hard one to call, actually. And on the European side, and you know, we, the last extension, we had that kind of sticking plaster analogy from Macron. That it's just you know, you just rip it off mm. and it'll hurt, but it's better than the mess. Yeah. Do you, do you get the impression that that's gaining more traction? Yeah, I think I th it seems to be. I mean, any of the commentary that 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 people were picking up around the European summit last week um, on, on the nineteenth and. 20th of June um, there, there was a feeling that the mood against another extension is hardening not least because a lot of companies in Europe uh, had to pay quite substantial sums in the run up to the end of March they're going to have to do that again in the run up to the end of October and they, at a certain point they're getting fed up having to stockpile and you know, pay all this contingency money and, 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 and so on and there's a feeling that they just need this to be done and sorted. Um, having said that, nobody really wants to push the UK out. But if it came to it, it, it would have to be a request on the basis of a general election or a second referendum. Or perhaps the, the, the more unlikely option, Boris Johnson or whoever will have you know wielded such charisma and magic in September and October and has got some kind of fix that he thinks he can sell to the House of Commons, and then on that, that point, yeah, but I was already, I was reading something just before this saying that already there isn't enough time. There isn't enough time, no. So no. even even if it's all smooth, for yeah. all the legislation to go through, you yeah. probably haven't got enough time. Yeah. So, so. W one expects that, that that there could be a request for uh, a, a technical extension process. to just complete the process. But they would, you know, again, the EU would have to have real certainty that that this is not going to be held up like the not wasting uh, not wasting time yeah. and that they're not okay. going to have a you know suddenly the erg coming out and saying we're, not, we're going to vote against this and so on yeah yeah um the other thing that's happening in brussels at the moment or rather isn't happening is top jobs are mm. uh, the uk's going to be losing some good supporters people like donald Tusk, mm. Juncker, people who my impression always was had had tried to find common ground. Do you think that any of the potential? I'm not even going to say who's going to get the <laughs> jobs because that's an even more ridiculous question. Yeah. Uh, do you, Do you think that the new people who will take those jobs uh, will be as friendly? Uh, will they be? You know, will they, will they be an opportunity for the the EU to say, mm. well, we have more reason to kind of move this on? And yeah, I mean, uh, I, there, there's definitely the, an idea in the UK that there'll be a, a clean slate in October. There'll be a new Commission president, a new Council president. But in reality, the um, the UK is still negotiating with the European Council, so it's still the, the heads of government who have the ultimate say in in whatever happens. Um, Michel Barnier is still the EU's chief negotiator. He still has the Article 50 task force at his disposal, although a lot of the officials have have had to move on to, to their old jobs or, or new jobs. And I think there's also a feeling in Article 50 that, okay, I mean, these people have been doing this for three years, even more, and 
while there was a certain cachet to be involved in Brexit, from there's a career a limit, point of view, yes. there's a limit. To, you know, you, do you want to be stuck on the on the on the Brexit hook for for so long? Um, but you know, ultimately, the e, the Commission as an institution, as an entity, uh, has a fixed position on this. Um, it takes its mandate from the negotiating guidelines, and those still hold. Um, and it is ultimately, I mean, Michel Barnier is ultimately answerable to the heads of government, uh, and, and they, with you know, one or two exceptions, they're, they're not really going to change in, in, in the autumn. So with that in mind, are there changes in the 27 that you, you see as being consequential, changing governments, absence of leaders? You know, I think about Angela Merkel at some point, we're going to yeah. have a, a, a turnover. Uh, there and we're not sure quite when that is. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose all of this would happen after after No Deal, uh, after after the end of of October, which is the deadline. Mm. Yeah, so so these people are still going to be around for a while. Um, I mean, the idea that the Eurosceptic um, leaders or or governments like Italy or Hungary, um, you know, would would be uh, supportive of. Brexit hasn't really panned out, although having said that, the Polish um, Prime Minister and Foreign Minister, uh, you know, they, they ventured further into the territory of a uh, time limit to the backstop than anybody else, and they were fairly quickly shot down by, by the Irish government and, and the German government. Um, but there's no doubt that that risk is there. You know, if, if this drags on, you know, you might get more voices who are saying, "Okay, we need to sort this. We need to move on the backstop." Mm. But so far, you know, it hasn't happened. And the other thing worth saying is that if the EU caved on the backstop to a Eurosceptic Prime Minister, what precedent would that set in the trade negotiations? If the UK gets the idea that if you just hold out, if you push and push, then the EU will cave to our advantage. And I think the EU will be very careful not to do that uh, on, on this side of October. But also clearly thinking, let's, let's assume that we find some way through this and we, we get a withdrawal agreement. It's clear that the 27 have very different views about what a future relationship, mm, yeah. uh, future partnership yeah. might look like. Yeah. Is has Ireland got a network of supporters who are there advocating the, the kind of close relationship that, that Dublin would like to see? Well, yeah, I mean, once the, if, say, you know, hypothetically speaking, I guess the, the withdrawal agreement does get over the line before October the 31st, then, yeah, we are into the trade negotiations fairly quickly. But if, as you say, the, the unity will not be what it was because individual countries have their own defensive and offensive interests on trade. And Ireland, of course, wants the closest trade relationship possible to safeguard north-south trade, uh, east-west trade between Ireland and, and the UK and vice versa, mm. of course. Um, and you have countries like the Dutch um, and uh, you know the other Nordic groups who are very much pro-free trade, um, but you're going to have the French who are going to be very defensive on fisheries. Um, the Irish too will be defensive on fisheries. You know, we, we, most of our most valuable catches uh, when it comes to fish, like mackerel, uh, we catch in, in UK waters. Um, so that's going to be a delicate problem for Ireland. Um, but you are going to, you know, to have a different set of, uh, of priorities and, and issues that 
it, it will be we're also consumed by the by the exit by the divorce that we none of us have really fully thought through the how this trade negotiation is going to work yeah sabine vayand of course is going to be <laughs> heading up the heading up that yes so, and, and she you know she, she's going to bring all her institutional memory with her one last question which is more about the role of the media and the press in this process how important a role has it had in terms of shaping people's understanding of issues view of what how issues should be solved yeah i mean i suppose the first thing to say is that the the kind of battle lines in the uk you know have been set for quite a long time mm. we know which newspapers tend to be eurosceptic and have tended to take a fairly abrasive line on the brexit negotiations uh, and that's all fine um, the, the problem is that when you get into the politics of, of Brexit and the negotiations, politics at a certain point always has to yield to the, the, the technical aspects of the unscrambling the omelette. Um, and I think the media in the UK has, has suffered in the sense that it, it's, its kind of track record on Europe was very much led by Eurosceptic parties and, and the Red Tops and, and, and the Daily Telegraph and Daily Mail and so on. Um, and that meant that, you know, when stuff was being declared rhetorically on the Today programme or anywhere else, the presenters simply didn't have a resource or a, you know, a, a bank of knowledge where they could challenge stuff. Mm. Uh, they didn't have the... T now, the trouble is that EU is, is technical uh, and none of us really had that vast resource of, you know, at, at your fingertips knowledge on the single market or the customs union or fisheries or, or international trade. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think it has, it has become a problem because a lot of politicians have been able to air things which clearly are contradictory or clearly do not make that much sense when you see the EU's own red lines. And I think that's what Donald Tusk was referring to when he talked about the special place in hell for uh, for, for people who didn't prepare for a no-deal Brexit or, or for Brexit of any kind. Um, I mean, there's a feeling among his cabinet that, you know, conservative ministers and MPs and commentators had made declarations and claims and rhetoric with impunity for three years and had never really been challenged and you know the moment they were challenged by Donald Tusk then you had this wave of vitriol saying how dare he insult the British government uh, and and leave supporters and so on I mean that was a perception uh, here in Brussels that um, you know this has been a completely asymmetric processing of information and fact um, and uh, and it had to be challenged at some point could the EU have done more to get its message across or done different things you know was it was that not really the issue well I, I think the I mean John claude Juncker has said he regrets now that the Commission took such a passive role in the referendum and didn't challenge stuff I mean they did send out Phil Hogan uh, the Irish yeah. commissioner uh, who was given this unspoken license to go off and talk to farmers and, and other people in the UK uh, and try and land a few punches um, 
but of course you can see the risks of uh, highly paid unelected commissioners turning up at a at a, at a Brexit meeting in, in the UK and, and making his or her her case. Um, I mean, the EU has always had a had a problem in selling its message um, because they think ultimately it's member states have to do that. They're not really it's not really their role to go mm. out and, and trumpet or so, cheerlead yeah. for 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 the European Union. Um, um, I think the problem is once Brexit happened and once Theresa May saw everything through the filter of the 52% leave victory, then it just became an adversarial process uh, and that naturally got taken up by, by the media and the commentariat in the UK. Well, that process might be producing a, a former Brussels correspondent in uh, number 10. Any ambitions? For me, <laughs> not at all. No. <laughs> Once Brexit's over, no, I think I'll go for a long sleep somewhere. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's uh, who would be British Prime Minister at this point in time? It's a tough job. Yeah, great tough job, yeah. and one which I'm sure you will report on copiously and uh, very. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you very much for your Thank time. Thank you, Simon. Pleasure.